This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from experts across the U.S. Ringler Associates, celebrating 35 years of successfully helping injured people and their families. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. Certainly glad you could join us again today. We're going to have a very interesting discussion today. We're going to deconstruct the complex world of construction defect litigation. We'll look at the necessary qualifiers for these types of cases, discuss the long-term effects on homeowners, and even talk about the benefits of using structured settlements in these types of cases. And joining us today as my co-host is my colleague Angus Kennedy from San Diego, California. Angus has more than 18 years of experience in the insurance and structured settlement field. He's especially involved with a lot of complex workers' compensation cases, Medicare set-aside type issues, and high-exposure public entity cases and, of course, construction defect. Welcome, Angus. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, joining us as our special guests, we have two special guests today. We have attorney Bruno Wolfenson, founder and managing partner of Wolfenson, Schulman & Roll. In, uh, Mr. Wolfenson has litigated a number of construction defect cases, as well as general negligence, catastrophic injury, casino security breach cases. That sounds interesting, Bruno. Uh, wrongful termination and a lot of other personal injury cases related to mold exposure. Bruno also lectures about construction defect litigation and uh, a lot of other issues all across the United States. Well, Bruno, welcome to Ringler Radio. Thank you for having me, Larry. Bruno, where is your uh, law firm located? We actually have uh, four locations. We have one in Southern California in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Another one is located in Las Vegas, Nevada. We also have an office in Reno, Nevada, and finally in Phoenix, Arizona. Great. Well, our other special guest is attorney David Gardner from Newport Beach, California. Dave is an expert in the taxation of settlements and judgments in many different case disciplines, but especially in the area of construction defects. So, Dave, welcome to Ringler Radio. Glad to be here, Larry. Well, Bruno, let's start with you. What constitutes a construction defect? Well, a construction defect varies uh, from state to state. But generally, it's defined as one of two things. Either something is broken with your home or association's property, or something is not functioning the way a code section or a law says it's supposed to function. For instance, in the broken scenario, you might have a situation where you walk out your front door one day and you notice the concrete is all cracked and broken. In the performance example, you might have a situation where you try to turn on your air conditioning, but uh, you're living out in the desert and it never quite cools your house down. Those would be situations where you as a homeowner are uh, damaged somehow and you make a claim to the builder to basically fix the thing or make payments so you can pay somebody to fix it. Hey, Bruno, um, who does it usually involve, and can there be more than two defendants involved? That's a, that's a great question. Yeah, typically I, a homeowner will buy a, a property from a developer. Now, the developer is usually just a, 
a financial uh, coordinator, if you will, and they gather a bunch of different people to do the actual work. You'll have a somebody who does the concrete work. You may have somebody else doing the framing and another one doing the roofing. When things go wrong, and we'll get into more detail, uh, typically one or more of those tradespersons get involved along with the developer. So it becomes a very complex matter, and courts across the country have even set up special divisions to deal with just that type of litigation because it is so uh, cumbersome, complex, and takes up a lot of uh, time and energy from the court system. Dave, you're going to be coming to us today from the tax side of construction defect cases. What's been your experience with these specific types of cases? Well, to start with, there's a general rule that's been established through some IRS rulings in some cases that the, the recovery typically that comes to the homeowner or through the association is a non-taxable recovery to the extent it does not exceed the taxpayer's basis in the property. The basis would typically be what you paid for the property plus any improvements you put in the property. Uh, and then when you use that money, if it's used to go back to repair or improve the property, then that adds back to the basis. So essentially you get a, an offset uh, for the recovery and it's not taxable income uh, as long as it's not representing uh, interest or some other form of economic recovery. Uh, but with the homeowners association, uh, that becomes problematic if there is uh, some other form of recovery other than just the damages because homeowners association pays a flat 30% tax on income. So usually these uh, situations are structured so that the recovery is representing the damages and coincides with the repair or improvement to the property. Bruno, uh, what are the necessary qualifiers for a construction defect case, and what is the most common type of defect that you see? Uh, Well, by qualifiers, uh, there's two aspects to that. One is what do you need to, to bring the claim, and typically, as I said earlier, it's something that is damaged or something that is not performing the way it's spelled out in the statute or something that is not built to the, the code. Um, if the code says you need, you need a certain amount of insulation and you don't have that in your home, you can bring a lawsuit for that. Now, several states have enacted a further qualifier, if you will, or a further step before you can get to court. Uh, as I said earlier, these cases are very complex, they're very time-consuming to the court systems, and the states want to encourage resolution before you get to the court. And so another qualifier is a lot of states require that a homeowner or homeowner's association first contact the builder and tell the builder what they're complaining about and give the builder an opportunity to make repairs. And if you haven't done that and you go to court and you file a complaint, that complaint will get kicked out or stayed, in other words, put aside by the court until you fulfill those requirements of allowing the builder to offer to either to make repairs or to make a cash payment so that the homeowner or homeowners association can make the repairs themselves. Dave, you mentioned uh, income flowing into the homeowner's account is taxed at a flat rate of 30%. 
I understand that structured settlements are often used to help minimize the impact of that. Can you talk about that? Yes, correct, Larry. That's Internal Revenue Code Section 528 that subjects the association to a flat 30% tax. Um, there's an exclusion for what they call exempt function income, which, but that's really membership dues, fees, and assessments. So if you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if, if the association got an upfront lump sum settlement, then, in, well, it was investing that money, and, of course, the question is who's going to decide how that's invested. They would be paying a flat 30% tax on that income. Uh, on the other hand, if, if there were a, what we call this in the personal injury field, a structured settlement, that money is coming in over time, that money as it's coming in is representing that recovery of damages that I alluded to earlier. And if that money is then, within a short period of time, put back into the property, there wouldn't be this earnings component that would be subject to the 30% tax. So you don't have the, the big lump of money sitting there getting exposed to 30, 30% tax if the money comes in periodically, is what you're saying? Yeah, that's correct. And the 30% tax could even be problematic uh, as far as whether or not some of that has to be passed through to the individual homeowners. That would create a, a big mess for the association. So from the association's perspective, uh, having the money come in uh, to fit their needs is uh, appropriate both from a tax standpoint as well as a management standpoint. Uh, L- Larry, this is Bruno. Let me add to that uh, a little bit. Um, in these cases, what we typically see as a complaint that that brings the case to uh, to the forefront is typically some kind of a leak or water intrusion problem. Uh, most typically, I see uh, roofing problems or window problems where uh, water's getting in and affecting the homeowners in a very real way, and they, they bring a claim. Now, what, what happens a lot of the times, and this dovetails into what was just said about uh, getting a flat rate or a, a lump payment and, or structuring it, a lot of the times the less culpable parties, maybe the developer and the subcontractors, who weren't involved in, let's say, installing the windows, will resolve their portion of the case and will pay their money. And there will be money available for the homeowners association, but not enough to cure the big problem, say the windows in, in the example I'm, I'm sure. giving. Mm-hmm. And that may take another year of litigation in court and may even take appeals before that money is realized. So if you have uh, money sitting in an account, uh, all of which is creating interest that's being taxed, that's not really benefiting the homeowners association as much as a situation where you would leave it in a structured account and only start receiving payments once you have enough to do all the repairs that you've envisioned. Yeah, good point. Excellent, Bruno. That's a great lead into my next question, Bruno, because I was going to ask you if you could give us a real-life example of a construction defect case that you're currently involved in. Sure. Um, in fact, we have uh, a few going on. Um, the The latest ones that are occurring and that I'm involved in are condominium conversions, they're called, uh, with the... The near recent spike in home prices before we suffered the uh, last couple of years of the downturn in the economy, with uh, with home prices having risen so much and with 
money being so readily available uh, and everybody willing to loan money to anybody that uh, could breathe, <laughs> exactly. a lot of developers started buying up old buildings, uh, buildings built in the 1960s, for instance, especially in lo- prime locations uh, near beaches or with a slight view of uh, the downtown area or some scenic uh, area. And what they did was they would leave the building as is in terms of the plumbing. Um, They would do minor cosmetic modifications. They would remove all the rust. They might put in uh, new bathroom fixtures. They might put in new drywall but they would attach that to the old plumbing system. They might put in a new roof, but leave the old air conditioning system. And what they could do with that is they could take a unit that normally would sell for a million dollars and sell it for half a million dollars. Now, what you were saving in the front end by only paying half a million instead of a million uh, you had to realize you were going to pay on the back end by having to do maintenance to the plumbing, to the air conditioning, um, to the various components of the home uh, sooner rather than later. And we're seeing a lot of litigation in that area. Is that because of, is that because of non-disclosure of all that, or what? What's the litigation about? Uh, the, the litigation does involve a great deal of non-disclosure. Um, happily for me, in the cases I've handled, we've had great disclosure. The uh, homeowners just weren't paying attention to that when they were buying the house in the, in the front end. Um, but some cases I've seen don't have a lot of disclosure. You know, the, the ideal disclosure for me would be a sales contract that says you're buying an old house uh, it was built in 1965. I've only put some paint on the on the doors and on the walls, and I don't know what's behind there. Uh, if you don't give that kind of disclosure, then as a developer, you may be in trouble. Interesting. Hey, Dave, uh, I know we've touched base on the flat tax on the homeowner's accounts, uh, but what else would happen with that money before it's used for repairs that's put into the homeowner's account? Well, that's a very good question. It's just, um, you know, I don't want to be sound cynical, but you know, you think about if you were involved in a, in a homeowners association who's on that board and how they're going to decide how they're going to invest your money while it's being held before they can commence repairs on, on your home. Um, that raises just a very good question. Yeah, I, most of these people on these homeowners boards are not skilled, sophisticated in how to invest. So it's, probably not the best thing for the association to be doing is investing a significant amount of money that really needs to be used in the future uh, to take care of these repairs, and particularly when costs may be uncertain. Which means basically there's obviously a high risk to the money that's been received for repairs, and and if a poor investment is made, it would not be there at the time in which the repairs are supposed to take place. That's, well, yeah. that's right. And the money would be there, obviously, if it came uh, periodically in the future a little bit. That would be cool. Hey, Bruno, I would sense that, you know, with the housing boom, as you mentioned, where these people were buying up these older properties and and all of that, that would give rise to potentially some more litigation, as you said. 
But are these cases on the rise also because of the downturn now and the, and the loss of value in a lot of these homes in that they're tr- people are trying to recoup potentially what they think they've lost through litigation on the defect side? Uh, that, that is correct. Um, there is, you know, as, as long as uh, home values are going up, there's, uh, there's not a lot of appetite to bring a lawsuit to fix things in your house because, gee, I can just sell it, you know, with the defects that some attorney's telling me I have, I can still sell my house for profit. With the downturn in the economy, there has certainly been a rise in the filing of litigation. Now, one, one curious thing uh, that's happened, I would say, in the last year or so is that you know, these lawsuits are expensive. Uh, you have to have experts who are hired to look at the electrical system. You hire a different expert to look at the plumbing system, a different expert to look at the uh, roofing system. And so from a plaintiff attorney perspective, it becomes very expensive to initiate one of these. And one of the things that plaintiff attorneys were doing was they were going to banks and getting loans to finance these cases, whether through their own signature or with the homeowners association signature. Well, banks aren't lending that much money anymore. So it's becoming more difficult to finance these cases. And I would say in the last six months, in some of the jurisdictions I practice, we've actually seen a decrease in the number of cases that are being filed. Interesting. Because there's simply not enough money to uh, to finance these things through through the banks on the initial. Yeah. You, you, know, forget, you forget how, how expensive the litigation is. That's right. You're right. Hey, Bruno, what's the blame in your opinion? I mean, we look at inexperienced contractors, mass-produced homes, cost-cutting, competition, all the above. What's your opinion? Um, you know, I would say in the past, I would have definitely said um, a housing boom coupled, and, and I'm talking about the 1970s and 1980s, a housing boom coupled with inexperienced contractors, because people would see that uh, their houses are selling like hotcakes, you can make a profit, uh, and everybody and his brother would jump into the uh, construction trade. Uh, you know, they may have been selling shoes uh, at a store, and somebody said, hey, come come work on our crew, you'll make more money this way. I think that has, through litigation, that has generally been erased. A lot Developers are much more sophisticated. They understand that they have to be careful about the way they build things. They have to pay attention to things, give training to their employees. The thing that is that is litigated or been litigated since then, I would say, is more new techniques and new products. Uh, the the building industry, like every other industry, is constantly evolving. Uh, new products that make it easier, cheaper, and faster to build homes come on the market all the time, um, and. They apply these new products, maybe without the manufacturer having fully tested these things, and lo and behold, it turns out that they don't work. Uh, One example is they have this flexible clear tubing that is now your plumbing. You know, we used to have copper pipes. Now we have these clear tubes that carry your water, which is great, except that the place where they put the couplings on there Turns out the couplings weren't very good and would break and would crack, and then you'd have leaks all over your house. So what what they thought was this lightweight, 
easy to handle, easy to maneuver piping uh, turned out to be that. But when you coupled it and you intersected it with the fixtures, whether it was a, a you know, a, a sink or a shower, uh, those couplings would break uh, and leak. So that became a problem. Another example like that is they came up with what's called one coat stucco system. Basically, a very thin stucco system that you can use in warmer climates that's applied over a foam board. Um, and again, that was a great application for what it was originally developed, which was to put on the outside of concrete and brick buildings over in Europe uh, to give you some kind of a aesthetic facade. But when you started using it as your only wall in the warmer climates, turned out not to work so well, turned out to crack and um, break easily. So things like that have definitely um, caused, I would say, in the more recent uh, past, construction defect litigation, products that just aren't suited for what they were uh, sold for. Bruno, what is the typical defense in these cases? Well, they range. I don't know that there's a typical one. Uh, the defenses include things like this actually functions the way it's supposed to function. Um, and sometimes some of these claims are uh, uh, a little bit baseless. Uh, for instance, you have experts that go out there with a spray apparatus and apply it to a window and get the window to leak. And then they get to say, hey, look, this test is, uh, is made to test windows, and I put it on this window and it leaked. And the response to that is, look, that test is designed to test windows before they get out of the factory to see if they meet certain parameters. It's not designed once it's in the house. And once it's in the house, uh, you only have to have weather resistance according to the code. And this test isn't weather. This test is a fire hose being applied to the window. So some of the defenses are, hey, you guys are making up some of these claims and some of these defects. Other defenses yeah, from a developer's standpoint, which is what I represent, might be no, no defense at all. It might be, yeah, you're right, this is broken, but I, the developer, didn't swing the hammer uh, it was the framer that did that, so let's blame them. Uh, so they, they range. I, I wouldn't say that there's a, a typical one, but a lot of them are this complies with the code or this is simply a misinterpretation by, by the homeowners as to what the code means, and it really does comply with it. Bruno, on one of our uh, Ringler Radio most popular shows, we, we discussed the problem uh, caused by Chinese drywall, which I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with. and Part of that, I know, are allegations of physical harm being caused to the individuals who are in those homes, as well as the obvious uh, problems with the, with the physical plant of the home. Are these cases considered construction defect cases in your eyes? Uh, they, they are, because it's a problem with part of the construction. Now, what happens in a case where you have what I'll call a a mass-produced and mass-used product is a lot of the times that a class action will be brought on behalf of all people who are similarly situated. Uh, in other words, in this situation, if everybody has experienced the same wrong, meaning they were 
given Chinese drywall. And, and for the listeners who don't know, the problem with Chinese drywall is that the components that it's made from apparently emit a gas or chemicals of some kind. Uh, the chemicals have been shown to interact with certain metals and cause it to corrode. Uh, they will tarnish and cause nails in the drywall to, to turn color and pop the drywall. And according to some uh, plaintiff attorneys and some medical experts, they create a, I will call it a negative health effect on some humans. Uh, the reason I use those terms is because the, the health effects aren't necessarily verifiable. It's not like you have an artery that starts getting thicker or a heart that starts beating faster, but it's, it's a general malaise, a, a general feeling of I'm feeling run down, I'm feeling a little sick, I've got more sniffles, my eyes burn, that type of thing. Um, we, we had that same thing happen with mold uh, a few years ago, yeah. and uh, it took quite uh, an effort. But on the defense side, we were finally able to convince most courts that the, this was voodoo science. Uh, mold wasn't doing all these terrible things. Just because you have mold in the corner of your shower doesn't mean your whole family is getting sick and going to the hospital. Uh, in fact, we could show that you couldn't ingest enough mold through your nose to get the kinds of symptoms people were trying to complain about. But you had a whole cottage industry of, of doctors and attorneys who were trying to convince the courts otherwise uh, because it was to their financial benefit to be able to show that, hey, if there's mold in the house, it's making you sick and I'm getting to treat you for it and charge you lots of dollars for it. Well, that, that's what makes the litigation world go around, isn't it? It, it, it? That's exactly what it makes it go around. Um, so this Chinese drywall, um, I would say, to answer your question, yes, it, I would consider a construction defect, but it may be a situation where uh, it gets pulled out of that arena and it gets litigated by itself uh, kind of as a, as a class action. Yeah, I think that's where it's headed. Yeah. Hey, Dave, why is it important that the settlement agreement characterizes and allocates the damages correctly? Well, for a number of reasons. One, we've talked before about uh, a homeowners association having to pay tax on on interest or earnings. Uh, one just basic principle is that the settlement agreement should specifically refer to the payments coming in as compensation for damages or to provide uh, funds for repairs and improvement. There was uh, one case um, out here in California some years ago where the settlement agreement stated, uh, quote, interest accruing on the settlement shall be deemed an integral part of the damages, end quote. And in that case, the IRS uh, held that that was taxable to the condominium association, and the Ninth Circuit uh, upheld the uh, decision of the tax court, or excuse me, district court that went in favor of the IRS, saying that they were taxable and were not treated as a recovery uh, basis in the property. So first of all is to clearly state that what you're getting is uh, re recovery of damages for the construction defect. Uh, another thing is just the basic principle we see in all the personal injury cases is avoiding constructive receipt of the money used to fund the periodic payments, uh, typically an annuity, 
uh, the, the agreement should clearly state that the annuity is being held by either the defendant, the casualty insurer, or maybe a, uh, a third-party assignee to avoid having the uh, association be treated as the owner of the annuity. Interesting. Well, I think we should take a break right now. Let's take a short break and be right back with our discussion of construction defect with our special guests, Bruno Wolfenson and Dave Gardner, of course, with my co-host, Angus Kennedy. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for 35 years. Ringler Radio is celebrating its sixth year right here on the Legal Talk Network, produced by broadcast professionals. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in the settling of physical injury claims. Experience counts. Over $23 billion in structures benefiting 166,000 injured individuals and their families. And one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you joined us. I'm joined here by my colleague and co-host, Angus Kennedy from San Diego. The Ringler office out there is well taken care of with Angus. And our attorneys, Bruno Wolfenson and Dave Gardner. Uh, Bruno and Dave, is it true that most states impose time limits on these construction defect claims? You know, typically statute of limitations or statutes of repose. This is Bruno. Yes, both of them. And you need to be careful because different states impose different time limits. Um, Typically, what I would say to a homeowner is as soon as you notice a problem, raise it to the the attention of the association. Because uh, once you notice a problem, there is typically a one, two, or three-year time limit, depending on the state, of when you can bring that claim. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's something that you don't notice, that's hidden behind the walls, that it takes an expert to tell you about, that may give you a longer time to discover. Some states, it's eight years. Some states, it's as little as six years. Other states, it's as much as 10 years. So again, it's the the best uh, the best rule of thumb is as soon as you think something's going on, mm-hmm. bring it to the association's attention uh, or hire an expert and figure it out. Now, do you find a lot? There's a lot of litigation on that issue of when did it happen and is it too late? Is it, or is that rare? Uh, there is actually a fair amount of litigation in the, on that issue. Okay, uh, especially when you have evidence of you know an ongoing leak problem that you haven't brought to anybody's attention uh, for five, ten years. And I have seen cases thrown out because the homeowner took too long to bring uh, to bring the claim. One of the benefits of structures uh, in construction defect cases is not only pertain to 
periodic payments for the repairs. We've also found on certain cases that uh, the plaintiff attorneys have an opportunity to annuitize either not only all or a part of their attorney fees and, and get a tax-deferred benefit there. Can you speak to that briefly? Well, of course, in some cases, that it's almost necessary because the payments are coming out over time. Um, as some, has been mentioned earlier, a lot of the defendants are, are straggling. They aren't settling at the same time. So the attorneys may be in a situation where their fees uh, are coming in over time. And in fact, they may prefer that uh, because it helps them from a, a cash flow standpoint, a management standpoint, to have their income uh, come in uh, periodically rather than all at one time. Uh, it also helps from a tax standpoint because they are deferring the taxes on the the income that has yet to be paid uh, to them. Uh, so there are a number of reasons why it, it would come up in, in these cases. Uh, it just certainly helps them. You know, particularly, I, I'm not going to speak from the economics of it because I'm not, myself, our firm does not handle those cases, but I'm sure that a lot of this is feast or famine. They'll get uh, fees in one year and then maybe not have fees for a period of time. So that's pretty hard to run a law office when you, when you get uh, your income in that way. So having their income come over a period of time could be certainly helpful to managing their expenses. Yeah, we find a lot of attorney, plaintiff attorneys enjoy the, uh, the certainty and the, and the uh, spreading out of those uh, fees coming in. You're absolutely right, Dave. Bruno, one final area that we should talk about, is there anything new out there? Are there any new construction defect issues that are coming to light that our audience should know about? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, as I spoke before, whenever a new uh, product or a newfangled way of doing things comes on the market, it looks great at the beginning, and sometimes it leads to problems. One thing I found uh, that is being done right now is these vinyl windows. Uh, they're they're taking your old aluminum windows, uh, whether it's in a condominium conversion or whether it's just in a remodel of your existing home, uh, they take out the aluminum windows and they put in these new vinyl windows. And I think the jury's still out as to whether these vinyl windows uh, will actually do what they're supposed to do, which is uh, let in light but keep out the weather. Uh, and we're seeing a, uh, a number of claims based on these windows not keeping out the weather and uh, causing leaks. Well, Dave and uh, Bruno, if some of our audience members want to reach you, how would they do that? Uh, this is Bruno. The best way to reach me is through our website, uh, which is www.wolfenson, and that's spelled wolf like the animal, <laughs> E-N-Z-O-N dot com. Great. Uh, and all of our information is there for our various offices, emails, etc. How about you, Dave? Uh, I'm down in Newport Beach, California. My phone number is 949-851-9025, and I can also be reached through any of the Ringler offices and producers. Super. Angus, how about you? Well, you can go to our website, ringlerassociates.com, where you can also find uh, Ringler Radio Shows. Uh, my email address is akennedy at ringlerassociates.com, and my toll-free number is 866-485-0015. Well, again, if any of you want to listen to Ringler Radio Shows, you can go to our website, ringlerassociates.com or the legaltalknetwork.com. Uh, you can download them uh, onto your iPod, walk around the park, Listen to uh, all you want to hear about construction defect. I th I'm sure that'll be interesting on your walk. Don't you think so, guys? Absolutely. Terrific. Well, listen, Bruno, again, Dave and uh, Angus, thanks for joining us. And to our audience, go out and have a great day. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio in its sixth year on Legal Talk Network with over a half a million listeners. Ringler Associates, where experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in physical injury claims. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.